Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. We're your hosts, Jen Marcocci and Emma Fabregat. For today's wrap-up, we're talking about the tea with Putin, America's postal services being dragged into political battle, nuclear power standoff, and forced labor in Xinjiang. Hey Emma, how's sunny Sydney? Like, it's good, even though the birds won't stop chirping. Yeah, I can actually hear them in the background. I love it. (laughs) So we might have a bit of cute background noise for this episode. Anyway, let's get stuck into it then. So I think we're all wanting to know what's the tea with Putin at the moment. If you haven't been following this one, recently a man named Alexei Navalny has been poisoned and all signs point to Putin. Yet there's actually no evidence so far that proves it. But why did Russia apparently poison him? Well, Navalny has been described as Putin's biggest political rival, as the most prominent opposition opponent in Russia. He was campaigning against Putin in the lead up to the election, and his campaign has been focusing on anti-corruption, which is a massive issue in Russia at the moment. And how did he come into the political scene in the first place? Well, in 2011, Navalny set up an anti-corruption foundation and it campaigns against corruption. But they also have a team of investigative journalists which run investigations into high-profile Russian politicians. Notably, in 2017, Dmitry Medivez, the now former Prime Minister of Russia, was looked into and they ended up revealing that bribe money was being funneled to pay for a lot of his properties. Which is a bit questionable for the people of Russia when a lot of their industries are screaming for federal funding. Yeah, I can imagine. So how do the people of Russia react to it? Not that well. Anti-government protests began and there was a day of demonstrations across Russia. It was said that 700 people were arrested by the Moscow police, including Alexei Navalny. These protests are considered to be some of the largest Russia has seen in many years. So I'm assuming this ties into Navalny getting poisoned, but what exactly happened? Well, Navalny was actually in Siberia campaigning for local opposition politicians in the local election. And on the eve of the day he was poisoned, he was actually asked, how are you still able to do this? And this question was asked because many opposition politicians over the years who have run against Putin have either been run out of the country or killed whilst they've been campaigning against the Kremlin. Basically, they're asking, how is he still alive? And he said, if they kill me, it will create more problems for those in power. This is basically saying that he's too big to fail at this point, until he almost wasn't. The next morning, Navalny is on his way to the airport to go back to Moscow, and he's at the airport, and the first thing he consumes for the day is a cup of tea from the airport cafe. And shortly after boarding the flight, he feels really unwell and goes to the bathroom. He falls violently ill and the plane has to make an emergency landing and he's taken to a hospital. The Russian doctors were very quick to deny that he had been poisoned. Yet, of course, everyone thinks differently due to the obvious history. So how was he treated? Well, he was actually then flown to Berlin after persistent calls from Germany and other global allies of Germany. And doctors realised that they were dealing with something major. They called in army chemical experts who identified Novichok in his system. Now, Novichok is a nerve agent that very few people have access to, so this really escalated the situation. German officials threatened sanctions on Russia. The future of the German-Russia pipeline is in doubt now, and Germany's allies are pressuring Russia for answers. 
But why does Russia use poison? So there's a few reasons here. I think the most the most interesting one is that this plausible deniability because everyone knows it was Russia because they've used it in the past, but it can't 100% be proven. The second is that they have so much of it because during the Soviet Union story, a laboratory was made just to produce poisons. The last reason is that the effects of it are painful and horrible. Once you recover, you live in fear wondering if it will ever happen again. With Novashop, it's not really known if we will find out who did it or even if there is a transparent investigation. A transparent investigation is very unlikely. You will probably just find out who dropped it in the tea or how the agent was delivered, but who ordered it will be very difficult to find out. So it's nearly impossible to prove it was Putin. So who signed off on it? In the case of Navalny, and given he's the biggest rival of Putin and that Novichok was used, it's highly unlikely that someone would even try to pull this off without Putin's sign-off. Even if he didn't sign off on this, he would still be indirectly responsible because he's been running a system that allows for the target and harming of opposition politicians and others even. So where is Alexei Navalny now? So he actually has emerged from his coma. His condition is critical but stable and responsive. And it remains to be seen if it will leave lasting damage. It's doubted that this will silence him, which is a bit of a relief, due to his commitment to his cause. So it will be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I'm keen to see what's going to be going on in the next few weeks. But going on the wave of political tensions, we can now move on to how America's postal services are being dragged into political battles. There's an ongoing sort of conspiracy theory by the Republican government, which obviously is led by Donald Trump, that the American Postal Services is, quote, the biggest threat to a second term, end of quote. This comes after in the month of May, in which Trump placed his close ally and mega donor as the Postmaster General, his name's Mr. DeJoy, which is suspected to be a plan to severely restrict and break havoc on mail and voting through funding cuts, which would help President Trump be re-elected. Now, DeJoy rapidly started reassigning over 20 executives of the postal office and severely cutting overtime workers, creating slower mail by weeks. His policies including removing mailboxes, closing sorting centers, and reducing delivery times. One state representative identified a 400% increase in citizen complaints in postal services. Now, DeJoy has recently begun to reverse these funding cuts as he has been called to testify in Congress on his intentions and was looking to be sued by over 20 states. It all seems a little mysterious to me as to why these cuts would have been promoted in a time when postal services would be used more than ever. Yeah, why does this matter? So the initial emphasis by DeJoy to cut funding was due to the 50% reduction in mail use since its peak in 2001. But now, during the pandemic, more states are looking for a mail-in balloting to allow access for their citizens to vote in the upcoming elections, which would account for three-quarters of the U.S. population. That's huge and unprecedented. Without not even cuts but increase in funding, the efficiency of the mail-in vote will be seriously harmed and also increase chances for Trump's re-election. In turn, outrage has struck across the country some leading into protesting, and some even going out of their way to go to DeJoy's own home to show their resistance. Yeah, wow. Why does Trump think that the mail-in voting would be in favour to the Democrats? So Trump has made some pretty wild accusations lately, but his central idea is that increasing mail-in voting will increase fraud and Democrat turnout. The problem with this idea from a security perspective is that there's no actual legitimate study that demonstrates increased widespread fraud from mail-in voting. 
In fact, there's actually a 2017 study showing that fraud from male voting sat at 0.00004% and 0.0009%. Now, two independent studies suggest there's little historical evidence to support that fear. But scientists warn that by making voting by mail a partisan issue, Republicans could lose in turn mail-in votes and benefit Democrats. If anything, Trump is shooting himself in the foot as he's spreading an idea about mail-in voting, essentially deterring Republican voters from it and in turn validating his fear of higher Democrat turnout. We'll be right back. Join us on Wednesday, the 16th of September for a free event by the Young Diplomats Society. Between 8 and 7 p.m. with former Australian Foreign Minister Alexander Downer AC, we'll be unpacking the future of Australia's engagement with UK foreign policy issues at the forefront of COVID-19 and Britain's transition out of the EU. We look forward to seeing you there. Link in the description to register. So that's what we know so far in terms of the elections and what's going on with the postal services. And in other news, I also wanted to talk about a nuclear power standoff moving towards China and India. Now, if you remember from our last wrap-up, we spoke on the escalation of diplomatic and military tensions between India and China, which led to the ban in June of our beloved TikTok app. But don't worry, that was only in India. However, this week, I'm actually going to give you some explanation as to why they're in a standoff in the first place. I'm ready for this lecture. So for decades, the two nuclear and rising superpowers have had tensions regarding their disputed borders in the Himalayan mountains, called Line of Actual Control, or LAC for short. This line was officially formed after the Sino-Indian War of 1962. In the early to late 1990s, both nations established peace treaties to avoid military conflicts over these borders. But after 45 years of peace, violence broke out in June over claims of trespassing. See, in 1914, under British control, Britain established the McMahon Line, marking a border over 3,400 kilometres between China and India into the Himalayan Mountains. This border alone was a point of tension between China and India, which led to the known Sino-Indian War in the 1960s. But the current point of contention, however, lies within the borders of the Himalayas, and that is that there is actually no defined border. It's just a big grey zone. As such, tensions rise due to the lack of clarity of ownership, Meanwhile, infrastructure from both nations have been increasing to allow quicker transport of material and military goods to the area. As both nations grow economically and militarily, without forgetting that they both possess nuclear weapons and have a deep history of mistrust, it's hard to be optimistic in where a slight misunderstanding may lead. So where are things at the moment then? So recent news have revealed that both nations met in Moscow for a high-level diplomatic discussion to immediately de-escalate renewed tensions on their contested Himalayan border and take steps to restore peace and tranquility. This was specifically targeted at the ongoing standoff by both sides of the border with firearms and threats of violence previously witnessed on the 7th of September. However, it's unclear and too soon to say if these acts of diplomacy will hold any value, as these tensions have been built on decades of mistrust and even war. Speaking about mistrust, let's move on to forced labour in Xinjiang. So backlash is currently growing against China's abuse of Uyghur Muslims, a mainly Muslim minority group in the province of Xinjiang. They are said to be detaining and abusing over 1 million Uyghurs in camps. Now, we're going to be focusing on this issue more in terms of the forced labour aspect of it. The United States is considering a ban on importing products from the province that contain cotton, which is a response to concerns that some Chinese companies 
rely on forced labour by Uyghurs. Evidence of this has been piling up, which becomes a complex issue when you think about the amount of companies that rely on imports from China and specifically this region. Yeah, so why are the Uyghurs being prosecuted? Why is the Xinjiang region such an important province for China? Well, this is where the majority of Uyghurs reside. Uyghur Muslims are a group of Turkic-speaking people who originated from and are culturally affiliated with the general region of Central and East Asia. It's a place which has attracted a tremendous amount of scrutiny from human rights groups and US state departments more specifically. They think that There is a system currently in place in the region where Uyghurs who have been detained and are allocated to work on farms as cotton pickers or are sent outside the region against their will to work in factories in other parts of China. That's so terrible. And so you said that there was forced labour. So which companies may be implicated in this forced labour? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty dire situation if you think about it. A lot of companies actually want to do the right thing, but upon mounting evidence, the companies who are most exposed to this issue are obviously those linked to the cotton industry, as the region actually produces 84% of the country's cotton, and China itself is the biggest cotton, yarn, and textile exporter. Some companies have already said they will cut all ties with Xinjiang, like Adidas and the company who owns Calvin Klein. So the bigger question becomes, how much are Uyghurs being forced to leave the region to work in factories elsewhere in China? Which is where the electronics industry and other industries are concerned about having forced labour in their supply chains. So what are the US State Departments and NGOs doing about it? Well, the New York Times said that Trump is considering banning some or all of the cotton products from Xinjiang, yet it wasn't fully explicit where the cotton that is actually woven into yarn and used in other places around China will be included in that ban. This is the latest in a series of measures since last year relating to allegations of forced labour in Xinjiang. They've previously also imposed sanctions on firms that do business there and they also have blacklisted some textile companies and they also are suggesting to American firms that they should be aware of this issue. So how is this issue in Xinjiang different from usual supply chain concerns for businesses. So this is China. These problems are majorly compounded by the fact that they are enormously powerful state, making it vital for many manufacturers. This is also in the middle of a geopolitical spat with America. And the most immediate issue with Xinjiang is that companies are finding it really hard to audit their own supply chains because they usually send in people to the region to go into factories and make evaluations about it. Yet when people go, they're followed by police and they're made to feel really uncomfortable, which means people are less willing to go there and conduct these audits, which means for the supply chain that a black hole is basically created as you can't prove if they're actually using forced labor. Even if the companies who buy the products think that forced labor isn't involved and think that it's really ethical, there's just no way to prove it. So what happens when the companies raise concerns with the Chinese government? (laughs) So companies can't actually raise their concerns directly with the Chinese government because historically the Chinese government does not take on anyone's thoughts, opinions, facts or concerns about their supposed human rights violations. So the result of this is that you now have companies that are being sanctioned due to alleged forced labour claims and they don't even have the ability to prove if they actually are using forced labour or they aren't. So they're being sanctioned without 
being able to reply and explain themselves. And currently there are no negotiations going on to solve this issue further and come to a conclusion between China and other companies. A possible solution for companies is to move their goods to be manufactured elsewhere, such as Vietnam or Bangladesh. Yet there are still concerns around Xinjiang cotton being used in these countries as well, making it a really tricky issue for all parties in the textile industry. What an interesting topic, Jen. Honestly, I'm I'm keen to hear more about it and where this story goes. But yeah, thank you for telling us about that. Yeah, no worries. We've really gotten through some tough topics this week. <laughs> See, See you, you in two weeks. weeks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Global Questions Fortnightly News Wrap-Up. And make sure to check out our upcoming trailblazers and in-depth episodes. We'll see you next week.